that's our catechism. We're going to go ahead and get into our study this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, if you do not have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. Uh, sorry, if you do not have a Bible, go ahead and grab one from the pew in front of you. Uh, they are the black ones. We're beginning a new mini-series in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, he arrives with significant fanfare and intentionality, basically using Old Testament language and imagery to declare himself as king, as the Messiah. Very publicly, he says, all right, I'm coming out as the Messiah. This is who I am. This is my public announcement. And because of that reception, hostility uh, stems up in the religious leaders of Israel and they begin to send questioners into the temple to try and publicly trap Jesus. And they try a whole handful of approaches that we'll be looking at. But for the next five weeks, every place will find a questioner coming to Jesus on a major topic in our lives and Jesus giving a surprising and sometimes even a head-scratching answer. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, Jesus and the government. And so, if you want to open up to Mark chapter 12, we'll read our passage beginning here in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we look at this passage this morning that you would teach us as you promised by your spirit. I pray, Lord, that as we weigh the relationship between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdoms of this world, uh, you would give us wisdom and conviction. And I ask as well, Lord, that you would help us to see who Jesus is uh, as he kind of reveals himself anew in a surprising way in this answer. We ask again, Lord, very simply that you would teach us in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. You might have noticed that verse 13 opens with an undisclosed group of people, a they, right? And they sent him. Who? If you jump back just to verse 12, um, here Jesus gives a parable specifically talking about the religious leader's rejection of him and how that's in pattern with Israel's whole history. 
Israel had been the one who God sent prophets to, and his people put them to death. And so Jesus puts himself in alignment with that and says, I am the last and final. I'm not one of the servants of the master. I'm the son of the master, and I'm here, and you're going to kill me too. Okay. And so notice verse 12, and they, the religious leaders, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told them the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they, verse 13, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. What were they looking for at the end of verse 12 there? A way to arrest them that wouldn't leave them in hot water with the crowds. Okay. They needed tactics. They needed a way to, uh, to cause Jesus to get himself arrested. They needed an accusation that would stand up in court despite the cry of the people. And so, like I said, for the next few weeks, different groups are sent, most of them by the same Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, to try and trap Jesus in their words. In fact, notice this first group that he sends is a mixed group. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap them in his talk. Okay. Now, these groups of people are specifically related to the question at hand. The question they ask is, should we pay our taxes to the Roman government or not? Okay. The reason why these two groups are significant is because they have both separately tremendously different answers. The Herodians were those who identified with the kingship of Herod, right? That Herod, the family of rulers in Judea that had been ruling over Israel since the birth of Christ. Remember that Herod who questions, uh, questions the uh, three wise men in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, all the way to the Herod in Acts chapter 12 who puts, uh, who puts one of the apostles to death. Okay. It's a whole family of rulers, all named Herod. The Herodians were ones who were pro-Herod. They believed in his government. They, they believed that by having an insider within the dynamic of Rome, that Israel was a safer place. Okay. And so their natural question is, of course we pay taxes to Caesar because it's in our best interest to be in good with this powerful empire. The Pharisees, though, had a very different answer. Uh, the word Pharisee just means the separate ones. Okay? And for the most part, that was religious in nature and not political. They were separate in that, in that they tried to maintain keeping up the old traditions of the Old Testament, committed to keeping the commandments of the Old Testament and the ways of Israel. But on this particular issue, they saw the... Uh, paying taxes to Caesar as an affront to God's sovereignty. Not just Israel as a nation's sovereignty. Obviously, they didn't have any sovereignty. They were under the thumb of an empire. But God, as the true king of Israel, Caesar's demands on them was an affront to that. So why is it that we find these two groups together? Strange bedfellows, we would say, right? The reason is because they have a shared hatred or fear of Jesus. Jesus threatens the status quo for both of these groups, and so they can agree to disagree long enough to trap Jesus in this question. Now, the thing is here, when they ask Jesus, should we pay taxes or not, both of these groups are set up to take a yes or no answer and bring it to trial. Okay. 
if he says yes, then the Pharisees can, uh, can demonstrate that his messianic claims must be ridiculous because he's fine with the Roman Empire. And the understanding of the Jews in that day, what they were anticipating for, what they were hoping for, was a Messiah who would set things right, who would save Israel specifically from Rome. Okay? But the Herodians, if Jesus said, no, we shouldn't pay our taxes, could nudge Herod and go, hey, you've got a revolt on your hands. You've got a popular leader who is teaching the people uh, not to pay taxes to Caesar, and you know what comes next, a violent uprising. In fact, that's the history of this particular tax. In 6 AD, Rome decided that uh, Judea was going to start to pay this tax, and there was such a violent uprising that uh, Rome crucified Jews in the hundreds in Jerusalem. Okay. And so this is a politically charged issue, and as our author Mark tells us here, it is a trap. Okay, the point is a rock and a hard place question, damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. They're not interested in Jesus' opinion. They don't really care how he answers. They plan to leverage that answer to put him to death. Okay. Now, notice that they also come with flattery. Look at verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but you truly teach the way of God. They're laying it on a little thick, aren't they? Remember, especially the Pharisees have been regular opponents of Jesus. They've gone the rounds, and so they find ones that haven't been soiled by those previous debates, fresh faces, and they send them in and they go, when you start, you know, butter him up a bit. Okay? They want to soften him, up, soften him up so he thinks that his conversation is safe, okay? that it's off the record. Jesus, we're really interested in your opinion. And especially because, and notice again what they say. First they say, we know that you are true. Okay? That concept of, of true there means without, uh, without fakeness, integrity. Okay? We know you're authentic. And the second thing they say is, you're not swayed by anyone's opinion. Okay? You don't play favorites. You don't lean in and serve the crowd just uh, to pull one over your audience. Uh, and then finally, you're not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. Now, what's ironic about this flattery is it's actually a pretty good description of Jesus as a teacher. This is who Jesus represents himself to be. This is how he constantly proves himself to be. But they're not affirming what Jesus already knows, what we already know. They're leveraging that to loosen him up, okay? To say, hey, we're on your side. We're pro-Jesus, and then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Okay. Now here's the thing. There was a couple of different taxes in the Roman Empire. For example, uh, on food that you raised yourself, that was a 10% tax. Wine or fruit, that was a 20% tax. But the tax that they're dealing with here, and the reason he asked for a denarius, is the census tax. Okay, and so... All adults, male and female, were responsible annually to pay a census tax just for being part of the Roman Empire. And let me be clear here, not for being a citizen of the Roman Empire. They weren't citizens. They didn't have the right of citizens, but they were under the empire. Okay? And so a denarius, just so you know, that's basically a day's wages. It's not a lot of money, 
but it was the principle that was the problem. Okay, that was the issue. But here they publicly ask Jesus this question. And notice verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy. He knows what they're in it for. John has a really interesting passage in John chapter 2 where it says of Jesus that he did not commit himself to any human beings because he knew what was in human beings. And it's amazing how often Jesus sees beyond the ruse. Jesus sees under the surface. Jesus knows things that nobody else should know. Remember the woman in John chapter 4 that Jesus is talking with. And he says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And he just prophetically speaks rightly and says, that's right, because you've had five, you've divorced them all, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Okay? And he has this knowledge. He sees behind the scenes. He sees through their hypocrisy here that they're playing off as friends when they are enemies. But what's interesting is as Jesus follows, he doesn't answer yes or no. He says, why put me to the test? That's where he starts. He asks that question. Why are you trying to entrap me? And then he goes on to answer, but he doesn't give a clear answer. Instead, he asks for a favor. He says, bring me a denarius. Now, that's a little bit interesting, isn't it? It means that Jesus doesn't have one of these coins on hand. Right? In fact, as we look at Jesus throughout his ministry, he's an itinerant teacher who has no physical house to himself, uh, who is totally reliant upon uh, the mercy of others. Luke chapter 8 tells us that there's a whole group of women who are kind of funding his whole crusade, coming along and feeding him and the disciples, etc. And so here he is in Jerusalem, in the temple, and he has to borrow a denarius to make his point. Now, he asks a question once he has one. He, he looks at it, and he says to them, verse 16, whose likeness and inscription is this? Okay. Just like modern pennies, ancient denarius had two sides, were round, and were engraved on both sides, both with an image and an inscription. Here's what it looked like. On the face of it was the head of Caesar Augustus and the inscription, Caesar Augustus, son of the August. Okay. August is a fill-in word for the divine. Okay. The divine Caesar, son of God. That's basically what it said on this coin. That was part of the Pharisees' problem with it, by the way. Because you may remember that the Old Testament required the Jews not to make any graven image of worship. And here is a man's face and a declaration of his divinity, and they have to carry it in their pocket. And they have to use it for their commerce. It was problematic. Okay. On the other side... Just to rub it in was a picture of Caesar's mother and the inscription Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Okay. Remember, in the ancient world, there was no separation between religion and politics. The Roman Empire was a religious endeavor and the high priest was the emperor. Okay. In fact, as I mentioned, the high priest was part of the pantheon of the Roman Empire. Worshipping Caesar, the declaration that Caesar is Lord was a required expression not just of political allegiance, but of worship. And it was generally offered with a pinch of incense. Okay. And so, once again, this is very high stakes. So Jesus sees this coin with a picture of the Roman Empire, with the inscription, and notice how interesting the inscription is. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, 
talking about Caesar, the Son of God. When the New Testament church says Jesus is Lord, you understand, right, that that's in direct juxtaposition to Caesar is Lord. It is a political statement. In fact, it's one that many, many, many Christians for a hundred years died for because they refused to say that Caesar is Lord. So this is high stakes. What are we ultimately talking about this morning? We're talking about the correlation between the kingdom of God with Jesus as king and us as his followers and the kingdoms of this world. What is the correlation between those two things? That is the question that Jesus is answering. And so what does he do? He takes a coin from the empire of Rome and he says, who's on this coin? Who wrote this inscription? It seems like, you know, I mean, either Jesus just never turns on the news or he's trying to make a point, right? It's not likely that he doesn't know that the inscription and that the image are Caesar. He's trying to make a point. And so they answer, well, it's Caesar's. And then he gives his answer. Look at it again. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God, the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Okay. Now, this, this wonder, this marveling, is partially just because Jesus eludes their trap. Right? This answer is not going to hold up in court as trapping Jesus in one way or the other. He, in some way, maintains or straddles these two positions. Give God what he's owed. Give Caesar what he's owed. But I think there's a lot of ways to misunderstand this statement. Okay. Um, the first that we need to avoid here uh, is that Jesus sees basically two unconnected realms. The political and the religious. Right? That's a very modern instinct that we have to separate uh, the religion and the politics, to separate the public and the private, to separate the spiritual and the secular world. Okay? In fact, there's many people in our world who believe it would be better if we could just keep religion out of politics. And so it's easy to read this, and Jesus basically says, if you hear it through those ears, well, just do the political thing and do the religious thing, but they're separate. They have no overlap. They have no connection. But don't ever forget the fact that at the end of this week, Jesus is going to hang on a cross and he's going to be put there by the Roman Empire. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem on a donkey fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy intentionally, declaring, I am the king, the coming one, the one who in Daniel rules over all the nations. That's who I am. Jesus' identity is tremendously political. It can't be kept in the private uh, practice of your Sunday worship. It can't be left in your private conscious issues and have no place in the public realm. It doesn't work. Another way that I think we often misread this is being fully sanctifying of government itself. Now, if you've ever read more of the New Testament, you discover that Jesus' followers actually talk about their relationship in politics quite a lot. And so, Romans 13, Paul says, obey the government. In 1 Peter, Peter says, fear God and honor the emperor. Okay? Uh, in 1 Timothy, 
Paul says we need to be in submission to the government that rules over us. It's a consistent thing. The problem is, the problem is Jesus says more than that. And um, here's the thing. Let's, let's just dial it back and, and look at a couple of things. Why does Jesus ask about the likeness and the inscription? Okay. One of the reasons is because these coins are actually part of Roman government, aren't they? They were made by the Roman government. They make commerce possible within the Roman Empire. Okay? Just like our dollar bills, the ones you may have in your pocket, uh, are printed by our government. Okay? So were these coins. He wants to know whose image and inscription they are because that shows who they belong to. And so what he says when he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he says, if they're his coins, give them back to him. Now, obviously, what he's recognizing is if you're going to enter in, if you're going to enjoy the benefits of, if you're going to participate in something, then you consent to the rules. Now, we're all aware of the abuses in this. Maybe you just heard about the recent court case uh, right here in Washington where some children wanted to sue Amazon. And they wanted to sue Amazon, and the reason they had to basically get court permission to sue is because that user agreement you've all signed says that that's not legally possible. Contractually, if you participate in Amazon software, you refuse the right to take them to court, and if you have problems, it has to go through, uh, through uh, what's that word? Arbitration. Forced arbitration, okay? Which is not a court thing, okay? So, kids just took Amazon to court and won. But we all know what that's like, right? We all know the tension that comes into this of participating versus not participating. And we're not this morning talking about a service that you can opt in or out, uh, opt out of, a fringe benefit that may or may not make your life better. We're talking about where you live and breathe and operate, the state, the government. But nonetheless, there is a reality here that all of these people that, uh, that um, Jesus is talking about are participants in the Roman Empire and not just subjected by it. That's why they have the coin in the pocket. So the first thing we see here is that in some sense... Jesus makes a statement that legitimizes government as a concept, as a possibility. When he says, render to the Caesar the things that are Caesar, there's a recognition of something we owe to the government itself. And like I said, if you read Romans 13, we owe them obedience We owe them our taxes, Paul reiterates in Romans 13. He says, render to anyone to whom it is due. Taxes to whom taxes is due, honor to whom honor is due. And so here there is a legitimacy that he gives government. But we don't have to assume that means that, that the Bible is either naive or complicit in tyranny. Because that's, I think, the next thing we think of is, why in the world 
would Jesus play the passive card here and, and say, Caesar, and remember, I know we've got problems with our government. I know there's issues there. I know that America has never escaped the possibilities of injustice. But we are talking about a conquered people of empire here. We're talking about a day where Rome has trampled the entire world till there's no armies left to stand against them. We're talking about uh, uh, an, an empire whose capital had more slaves in it than citizens. Okay. When Paul in Romans 13 says, obey the government, do you know who's on the throne? Not Caesar Augustus at that part, but Caesar Nero. And just as it's at the declaration of this government that Jesus will be crucified, so is it at the declaration of Nero that, that Paul will be beheaded. And yet, he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar. There's a legitimacy here. Now, that's not the only Bible thing the Bible says about governments and empires. It is full of stories of tyrants. It's full of stories of abusers. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Another empire ruler, this one over Babylon, who rules with a rod of iron. Uh, think, uh, think of even the book of Revelation, where the final opposition against God's kingdom, against Jesus himself, the one who Jesus defeats, is the whore of Babylon. And when you look closely, it's a political entity. It's an economic ent entity. It's a government opposed to God. And as Christians, we should always take Romans 13 and Revelation 13 and find a way for both of them to fit in Scripture. Both of them to understand, uh, for us to understand as Christians. And so what I would suggest to you, here's the ways that we cannot do so. We cannot remove ourselves from the reality of the world we live in or remove our responsibility as subjects to the kingdoms of this world. There's just not an option there. Jesus doesn't present a political uprising. In fact, he does not bring a sword to overthrow Rome, but instead endures their crucifixion. And to a degree, that's all part and parcel with the plan. Jesus is doing something. Um, but we also, and here's the thing that I think we miss all the time, when he adds here, and to God the things are, that are God, he doesn't just legitimize the role in government, he also limits it. When Jesus says here, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, that's not because government is good, not holistically good. Not because they never do any wrong. It's not a sanctioning of government that goes, government is a good thing, it's a best thing. Christians aren't called to be pro-government. He also doesn't call us to sanction government because it is divine. That he who has the power is on the side of God. That's not the issue at all. Remember that whore of Babylon in Revelation 13. Remember that the entire prophetic uh, timeline in the Old Testament is moving towards a time where all of these governments will be put down and under the foot of the only one who has the right and the character to rule, Jesus himself. Okay. And here's the thing. Even if you're not a Christian this morning, you have to recognize uh, that if you remove God from the paradigm, if you remove the higher court 
of righteousness and justice in the divine world, then there is a danger that government becomes divine by proxy. This was the reason why communism was so threatened by religion. Because if there was no religion, then they could be the final authority, voice, and power. So let's look at these things. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What this means is that Christianity doesn't make bad citizens of other nations, even if it gives us a new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Justin Martyr, in the second century, wrote his famous apology, defense, of Christianity responding to the false criticisms that Christians always got. And one of them was that they were subversive to the Roman Empire. He said, do you know any Christians? He said, we're the best citizens around. We are devoted to obedience and good order and practicing these things. And yet a few years later, Justin, the apologist who pointed out the call for Christians to be good citizens, was called before the highest court in Rome, along with some of his students. And he was there kind of like Jesus here because somebody hated his influence and wanted to get rid of him. And so they trumped up these charges and ultimately he and six of his students were offered the possibility to declare that Caesar is Lord. To offer the incense and just be let go and the whole thing would go over. And that's why we call him Justin Martyr. That's where he gets his name from because he refused to do so. There's a tension here in these things. We see it in people who are standing here learning from Jesus, his closest constituents, who are going to stand before this same Sanhedrin just a year or two later. The same ones who are intending to kill Jesus here, they do kill Jesus. Jesus dies, he's buried, and then he raises from the grave, and on Pentecost, all heaven breaks loose. Right? Things go crazy, and suddenly all these people are responding to the new Messiah. Everywhere these disciples go, people are getting healed, and people are getting saved, and the Sanhedrin goes, we've got to put a stop to this. And so they bring Peter and John in, they rough them up a little bit, and they say, hey, you're not going to talk about Jesus anymore. And they say, whether it's right for us to obey God rather than men, you'll have to tell us, but we can't stop talking about Jesus. Those men are sitting here. They live in this place. They work in this place. And here's the thing. When he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, the idea here is just like that coin, with his image and inscription, it belongs to him. But there are also things in our world, in our life, that do not belong to government, that were not made by the government, that aren't under the jurisdiction of the government. Those things belong to God. I've been thinking of a lot of different ways that we can pair these two differences. Here's the one that Peter uses. Fear God, honor the emperor. There's respect and role and office and honor that goes to the government, but we can't fear the government. Not in the way that Peter means. We have to live in such a way where the government is not the most significant determinant of our choices because we fear God. I've told this story before, but I can't resist. There was a preacher in the early days of the Church of England named Hugh Latimer. 
and he was a firebrand. He was one of those preachers who's fun to watch from a distance, but you don't want to sit up front. And one day he was called to preach for the king of England in the king's personal court. And he preached with the same intensity he always had, and he really brought it, and he focused on the sins of his audience, which were the sins of the powerful, the wealthy, and the royal. He got a message Monday morning directly from the king. The king was offended by your message. He'd like you to come back next week, and he'd like you to do better. (laughs) And so Hugh Latimer comes up, and before he starts his sermon, he says, Be careful, Hugh. Because today you stand before a man who can take your life like that. Be careful, Hugh, because today you stand before the greatest power in England and to a degree the greatest power on earth. And he says, but be more careful, Hugh, because today you stand before the living God who determines your eternal state. And then he preached the same message again. He eventually was put to death by that same king, by the way. Here's another way to think of it, okay? Fear God, honor the emperor. Here's another one. Worship God, obey the government. And don't hear that again through this modern paradigm that separates those. Worship is what you do on Sunday. Obedience to the government is what you do. No, 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 no. They are categorically different things. There are lines that you cannot cross. Okay? When we read obey or pay your taxes, what I'm suggesting to you is you have a responsibility as a follower of Jesus to obey traffic laws. You have a responsibility as a follower of Jesus to make sure that your taxes are up to snuff, even though they put all of the weight on us and figuring that out, and making sure that it's paid on time and in full. I don't know how you can believe the words of the New Testament and get around that. We have a clear responsibility on those things. But there is a whole category of your life that government cannot fill. There's a whole category of your life that government cannot fill, and that's what I mean by worship. I mean, what are you devoted to? One of the consequences of our secular age is the elevation of the significance of politics. I don't know if you know how those two things connect together, Uh, But it is observable in the pages of history. One of the consequences of our secular age is the elevation of politics because it is the only way to see what we need happen, happen. It is how we pursue our version of heaven. It is how we find salvation from our things. This is the reason why every four years anxiety spikes up and suddenly our entire fate hangs on a human election. Have any of you else noticed that Democrats and Republicans alike now for 12 years running have called every election the most significant election in history? It's continuously and totally high stakes. And I'm not calling for a pietism, am I, that says remove yourself from that, plug your ears, don't get involved. What I'm suggesting instead is don't worship it. Don't put your hope in it. Because here's the thing about every government on earth. It is filled with, from top to bottom, sinful human beings. And there is always a fly in the ointment. How many revolutions have we had in history that replaced one tyrant with another? I mean, think of Venezuela. 
I was listening on the radio this week, and they're doing a uh, a version of Les Miserables in Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. It's a little on point, don't you think? But before this revolution in Venezuela was what? Another revolution. One that people vested their hopes in, bled and died for. And something went wrong, as it always does. Okay. So worship means it's not what we fear. It means it's not what we put all of our hopes in. We respect the government. We also have a job to be a prophetic witness. When Jesus stands before Pilate, he's pretty frank. When Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin, they hold their ground. They speak honestly. They're not afraid. But they're also realists. They know what government is capable of, which is, let's be honest, a lot of good. But not the final good, not the total good, not the fixing of all things. It is not such a paradigm that if we can get the right person in office or pass the right legislation that we will finally find utopia. There's a sense where we as Christians know that there is a kingdom coming and that we live in the shadow of this coming kingdom and we have a right and a privilege and a responsibility to represent that to the world that is. And to even seek as much as possible for that kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. To be representatives of that kingdom. That means we care about the lives of citizens in the United States. It means we fight for good legislation. But it also means we do it differently. Not with a bloody sword or a, uh, a vicious and spiteful demonization of the other side, even though we believe that this is an issue of powers and principalities and spiritual forces. The reason is because there is both an immediacy to our understanding of our lives and a waiting. Both a Jesus is present and working and Jesus will inevitably come back that changes these things, that shifts these things around. We should render to Caesar the things that they are Caesar because they're just Caesar things. They don't mean all that much. But we can't give them the things that are God's. Those things are lasting. Those things are eternal. Human beings don't belong to the government. Obey the government, but worship God. Jesus isn't presenting two things here. He's again, and let me finish here, he's limiting the power of government. They have things. Those things are gifts with strings attached. Play the game and do it well. But make sure you give to God what is God's. And as much as for us, those coins have image and inscription this room has the image and inscription of God. Made by God. So this limitation is significant and it's one that Christians constantly have to wrestle with. Find the line on. I want to read to you very briefly uh, the, the letter that was published last December. Um, by a Chinese pastor, Wang Yi. 
He's the pastor of a church called Ladder Rain Covenant Church. He was arrested by the government because house churches in China aren't recognized by the state, and the last three or four years, they've really been ramping up the persecution of those Christians. So he wrote a letter before he was arrested, knowing it was coming down, and asked his church to release it if he wasn't returned in 48 hours. And you should really read the whole thing. He presents what he calls a case for faithful disobedience. He understands this in a way that we may not have the opportunity. Like Amy shared this morning, there are other parts of the country that don't come with the privileges and freedoms that we have. And it's good to learn from our brothers and sisters in harder times where these things are, to see straight. And I just wanted to share this one paragraph from you, but I'd really encourage you to find the whole thing. So he says at one point in the letter that he hopes that in his imprisonment and in him standing before the courts of the land and these things, he hopes that he can be a, a witness of Christianity to, to these government officials. But this is what he says. He says, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Christ. You see what he's saying there? He's saying there's a part that the government has no power over. And he's going to be a witness of that and he's going to do it by his faithful and hateless subjection to the government. You see, the way that Jesus encounters and opposes Rome is crucifixion. This is what was so significant to Martin Luther King Jr. when he took the loving ethic of the New Testament, love your enemies, and combined it with the Gandhian practice of nonviolent protest. The idea was there's only one way open to Christians to appeal to these things, not to go silent, but to take the consequences without fighting. Jesus doesn't just proclaim, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God's the things that are God. He gives his own blood at the false demands of the government, but also as obedience the God who put them on that cross. Faithful disobedience when done right is worship. Worship that says, I'm not chained to the things of this world. I'm not subject to the final and ultimate consequences of these things that are merely passing away. And the things that are eternal, the things that will follow, the things that are forever, you can't take those from me anyway. Now, I know there's a lot of nuance here, there's a lot of questions, and you can't build an entire Christian political paradigm on just this one sentence. And so when January rolls around, as we start this new election cycle, we're going to take eight weeks and talk about a Christian view of politics. But this does help set the boundaries. Okay? It does draw lines that we can understand are outside of. Okay? Christians are to be revolutionary, but not revolutionaries. That's on one side. Okay. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Even when the laws are unjust, be a witness against those unjust laws and take 
everything the government can throw at you. And again, I'd really, I'd really ask you to read uh, Wang Yi's uh, article because he says this isn't about my civil rights. He says this isn't even about changing legislation. He's like, that may or may not happen, it's irrelevant to me. What this is about is a witness to a greater kingdom. And so, this is what I would say. This, this morning, if you're not a Christian, it's really easy to hear this wrong. It's really easy to accept you know, Marx's opinion that religion is the opiate of the people, that it keeps the oppressed oppressed. That's a bad reading of Christian history. So much change, so much transformation has come through the influence of these ideas, through the influence of Christianity. But more importantly, what I would suggest to you is that actually Christianity is revolutionary in putting government back in its place. As a human institution, that just like any other institution can be abused, that just like any other institution must be held accountable. The thing that Christianity presents is not a sanctifying of government or a particular government, but instilling a divine method of living out faithfulness to God, a divine method of being a citizen, a co-citizen, if you will, a dual citizen of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this earth, and the orientation is always towards love our neighbor, which includes the citizens of this nation and the politicians of this nation and the opposite political party. But ultimately, it's not just about that. It's about living our whole lives, giving it back to the one it belongs to. Give to God what is God's. Let's pray. Father, there's a flaw there's a flaw in us as Americans that is innately and inherently anti-authoritarian. But the way that you've gone about solving things is not by overthrowing all government, it's just been by naming a perfect king. And so the right way to live out our lives and even to challenge, to stand against prophetically, to hope for and seek change in our nation and in other nations is to live in light of that greater authority. Not a life of autonomy, not a life where we make our own rules, not a vigilantism that mistakes, mistakes passion for wisdom, assumes we can fix everything, and so a little sin on our hands is worthwhile. Instead, Lord, we have to entrust all our hope to you. We have to entrust the empowerment of our witness to you. We have to entrust the kingdom to you. You've called us to look for it. You've called us to identify for it. You've called us to testify that it is coming and to challenge the powers that are that will stand before a higher court. You've also called us just like you did to lay our lives down for the ones who would take it. 
to give up our rights like Christ did. Forgive us, Lord, for this American idea that thinks that God comes into our lives to give us the kingdom that we built. The one that we desire, the one that we want, and God will just provide it. Instead, God, you've come offering a better kingdom. So ultimately, this isn't about surrendering to a particular government. This is about surrendering to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.